Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 114 of the Feeling Good podcast. Um, this time again, we will be rebroadcasting an interview uh, done by David on uh, the a podcast called The Upgrade. This is uh, from Lifehacker. Lifehacker is a this huge website that is chock full of tips on how to make your life better. And it's not just psychology, it's you know, how, how to make your bed. or <laughs> It's got a whole variety of things. Um, but um, the interviewers, I think, were uh, uh, Alice Bradley and uh, Melissa Kirsch, right? Yeah, Melissa Kirsch and Alice Bradley, right? And uh, and what was this uh, interview about? Well, I don't really know. Okay. <laughs> they, they invited me, and so I, if it's a pretty large audience thing, I I accept the uh, in- invitation because I figure that's uh, maybe a way to turn some people onto our podcast and my website. But they were very very gracious and fun to interact with, and went over many many topics. I think sometimes if you get a really popular podcast, uh, it's very professionally done, really warm yes. people, yes. and yeah. very kind of smooth and appealing. That's why they have a huge audience. But we went over topics uh, like, you know, again, why why did I write Feeling Good? I think they had read it and were excited about it, and and then uh, wanted to know, you know, is depression due to a chemical imbalance in the brain? We, we talked about that. We talked a little about... Uh, electroconvulsive uh, therapy mm. and uh, is that effective and yeah. what's my personal ex- experience w- with it yeah. uh, also uh, like a really cool question so, some people when they're they're depressed in fact some people listening to us right now sometimes they said how do you deal with someone who says oh i don't have any negative thoughts you know the whole basis of cognitive therapy is all your emotions result from yeah. your thoughts what you're right. telling yourself and they say well how what do you do with someone who says oh i'm, I'm just depressed or i have a biological depression i i, I don't have any thoughts that's right i don't have any thoughts you know? yeah and so we we talked about that gave kind of a fun vignette there. Uh, It turns out that's a very easy problem to solve. Then we talked about how would you treat somebody who's super severe, whose problems are are real and and horrific, and then uh, talked about a woman who'd been been through some pretty pretty horrendous uh, experiences and yet responded rapidly, I would say more than a complete recovery in in a single session, and and how that worked and what what some of the the new team therapy techniques are like and and how they can be applied even to to people with very, very severe problems. So it was just, it was just fun. I, I enjoyed talking to these great hosts. Okay. Well, uh, let's listen to that. 
us a little bit about you, about feeling good and cognitive behavioral therapy and how you came to write the book originally. There was this chemical imbalance theory of depression and Our research showed even in the 1970s that it was very unlikely that depression was due to a chemical imbalance in the brain. It just, it was just a kind of a poor theory with no evidence. And all of the medications I was giving to people, I wasn't seeing a lot of people improve. We had a depression research unit at the, at the VA hospital. And I can remember this depressed veteran named Fred and he would just sit around chain smoking, staring at the wall and, saying all he wanted to do was die. And finally, they decided to give him electroconvulsive therapy, kind of a last-ditch thing, and I had to administer the last ECT. It was the first time I'd ever given an ECT, and we wheeled him into the surgery room and applied the electrodes and short-term anesthetic, and I pressed the button and nothing happened. And I said, well, what should I do now? And they said, well, turn up the current. So I turned up the current and pressed the button again. He had a seizure, and then... We wheeled him to the recovery area, and I was standing next to him, and he came to And, you know, you've, you, have, you get amnesia when, when you get electroconvulsive therapy. And he said, where am I? And, and I said, oh, you're in the VA uh, hospital here in Philadelphia, and we've just completed some treatments I think are going to be real helpful to, to you. How, how are you feeling, Fred? And he said, I, I want to die. Oh. I just felt helpless and angry and crushed because I was seeing this over and over again, and, and yet the prevailing theory, the claim, was that you just give these people antidepressants and 85% of them will recover, and, and I, I knew that was not true. I, I was treating hundreds of patients, and I, I just wasn't seeing that. I, I said, there's got to be uh, another way, and so I, I heard about you know Aaron Beck, who had this goofy new thing called cognitive therapy, and I said, I, I'm going to try that with some of my tough patients just to prove that it doesn't work. He, he was saying depression is due to negative thoughts. And you can train people to change these negative thoughts, change their perspective, change the way they're looking at things. I said, that is stupid. <laughs> and lo and behold, they started recovering. And they said, we really like this. Give us more of this. And over time, I saw it's really true. Depression really is, and anxiety too, really they really do result from these distorted negative messages we, we give ourselves. And we've developed even more powerful techniques now. Uh, the, the cognitive uh, techniques are, are amazing, but we have new motivational techniques as, as well. And I'm, I'm now seeing people recover from depression and anxiety at speeds I would have thought impossible as recently as, as, as 10 years ago. Can you tell our audience what cognitive therapy is before you tell us about these new and exciting improvements on it? It goes back to Epictetus, who said, people are disturbed not by things, but by the views we we take of them. In other words, it's it's not what's happening to you, your negative thoughts about it. So when you're depressed, you're telling yourself, I'm a loser, I'm no good, I'm a hopeless case, I'll never recover. I screwed up. I shouldn't be the way I am. I should be better than I am. And those messages are very, very demoralizing, and and you think they're valid, but they're not. There's these 10 what I call cognitive distortions or thinking errors that you always see in the thoughts of people who are depressed and anxious, like all or nothing thinking. If I'm not a huge success, I'm a complete failure. You you look at everything in black and white categories that don't really map onto the way things are in 
in reality and, and overgeneralization, you, you generalize from a negative event to your entire self, or we beat up on ourselves for, for this or that uh, problem, and the pain is real, and, and, and it's hard to tell that what you're telling yourself is, is distorted and illogical, but that, that's, you know, the, the cognitive thing. In a nutshell, you feel the way you think. It's not what happens, even when something bad happens, it's, it's the, the distorted messages that you're giving yourself that, that causes your depression and anxiety. And, and you can change the way you feel the very moment you stop believing those negative messages and, and you see through them in that very instant, you can recover. A lot of times when people are severely depressed or severely anxious, they're not aware of having thoughts. They just feel bad. Like I've heard from people who are really depressed who just say, I just feel bad. Sometimes it's almost like a physical symptom instead of a mental one. How do you tease out in that situation what the thoughts are that are causing the depression? It, it's really easy to tell you the truth. Uh, I, I just say, what are you telling yourself? What are the messages uh, going through your mind? Select a particular moment that, that you were upset. What time of day was it? Where were you? What were you thinking? I had a, a stockbroker who had given this tremendous advice to his uh, people he was representing, and they made a ton of money in the stock market. And then he came to me with, with severe depression and anxiety, which was odd because he'd been so successful. Mm -hmm. And he said, I just feel depressed and anxious. I, I don't have any thoughts. And of course, I know that's never true. Uh, you're always giving yourself negative messages when you're depressed and anxious. So I said, give me a moment that you were uh, depressed and anxious. And he said, well, I was on the playing golf with a customer and we were about to hit the golf ball and I was feeling just panicky and, and horrible. So I drew a stick figure of a golfer with a bubble above the golfer's head. And I said, just make up some thoughts here. What, what is the stick figure golfer telling himself? It does, they don't have to be your thoughts, but make up something like you're making a comic strip. So he wrote down that the golfer was telling himself it was just sheer luck. The advice that I gave that made so much money for my clients and pretty soon they'll find out I'm not as smart as they think, and then my reputation will get ruined, and I'll lose my customers, and I'll end up uh, as a homeless person. Hmm. And, and also, I'll probably hit the golf ball wrong. It'll go into the lake. And I said, this was, this, would that explain why this stick figure golfer is anxious and depressed? He says, it sure would. And I said, now, are, are your thoughts like that? He said, that's exactly what I'm thinking. So it's it just kind of... Tuning in, saying, saying, saying to yourself, what am I telling myself? What, what am I thinking? And then all of these distorted messages come tumbling out. Why does this type of thinking start and why does it persist and why is it common in all of us? Well, actually, that's what the, the new work on, on motivation and resistance uh, has a lot to do with because what, what we're seeing now is, is that the, these distorted negative thoughts and, and your negative feelings are actually coming from the part of you that, that, that's the most beautiful and, and most awesome. You know, up to now, we've been viewing depression and anxiety as defects due to a chemical imbalance in the brain or a bad childhood or something that you're broken and you have to be fixed. When, when I do workshops around the United States and Canada, I almost always do a live demonstration with someone from the audience so I can show it really is possible to treat severe depression and anxiety in most cases and see a complete elimination of, of symptoms in a, in a single two-hour therapy session. And I, I did one 
I'll just call this woman Christine to disguise her identity, but she volunteered because she said she'd had, you know, 30 years of uh, rape and beatings uh, from her husband. She finally got divorced. This was 12 years later, so she'd essentially had 42 years of depression and failed therapy. Uh, Nothing had, had helped her. And I asked her, what, what are your negative thoughts? What, what are you telling yourself? I'm just kind of giving you the highlights of, of, of how it worked. But she was telling herself things like, uh, it was my fault. I must be defective. She, she was very extremely anxious, uh, too, and, and telling herself, uh, uh, you know, men, men can't be trusted and, and I'm in danger. And then she was also telling herself the people here in this audience are probably judging me and looking down on me and thinking I should have left my marriage much sooner. She, she actually stayed in the marriage because her husband, who was pretty sociopathic, had a lot of wealth and told her that if she ever divorced him, he would uh, kidnap the children and move to uh, South America and she'd never see them again. And she believed that, so she endured the, the, this horrific experiences. But the idea, and it might sound cruel, but as awful as what she went through was, it's her thoughts that are creating her pain. And, and, and she's telling herself things that make her feel ashamed, depressed, anxious, hopeless, angry, worthless. And so one of the things we do but before showing her how to crush those thoughts is say, if we had a magic button and you could press this magic button, you'd be instantly cured. Would, would you press the button? And she says, oh, yeah, I'd press that magic button for sure. I'm, I'm so tired of being... You know, I've been depressed and anxious. I've been in hell for 42 years. I said, well, we don't have a magic button, but I've got magical tools. And there's a good chance, even a likelihood, that you will improve or recover completely tonight. But before we do that, we better see what these negative thoughts and feelings show about you that's that's positive and awesome. And she says, what what, what are you talking about? I said, well, one thing, you're you're 100% anxious. She was as anxious as a human being could be. I said, you press that magic button, your anxiety is going to disappear. Are you sure you want that? What are some really great things about your anxiety? And she said, well, maybe it's going to protect me. Because I've recently met a a new fellow, and he, he seemed pretty interested in me, and but maybe I need to be, be careful so I don't get involved in another uh, horrible, traumatic, abusive uh, marriage. I said, absolutely, your anxiety, to be honest with you, is, is a form of self-love. It's a beautiful thing. We don't want to press that magic button. And, and, and then, in addition, you're, you're very, very depressed. Press this magic button, your depression will vanish and you'll be euphoric. Does that make sense? Would you want to be euphoric? You, you've been through 42 years of hell. Isn't it appropriate to be feeling sad and down? And doesn't that that show all the, your passion for life and for what, what what you've missed, what's been taken away from you? And she said, "Oh yeah, you're you're right." And, and, and I said, "And look, you're telling yourself def- you're defective. What are some beautiful things about telling yourself you're defective?" And she said, "Well, it shows I'm I'm realistic because I have a lot of defects." I said, "Let's add that to the list of positives. Absolutely." What else? You're very self-critical. What's great about being self-critical? She said, well, it shows I have high standards. And I said, absolutely. What a, what a beautiful thing that you've got high standards. 
have, have your high standards motivated you to do anything? She said, yes, after I divorced my husband, I got a PhD in clinical psychology, and I've got one of the biggest uh, practices working with uh, abuse victims in the city of so-and-so where she lived. I said, well, gosh, th those are some awesome things. And, and then you're, you're telling yourself that, that you, you feel ashamed because you think the people in the audience here are judging you and looking down on you. What does that show about you that's positive and awesome? She said, well, maybe it shows that I want a good relationship with the people in the audience, that it would be a, like a miracle to have someone love me and accept me, knowing this about me that I've been hiding for the past 42 years. I said, well, is that a good thing, that you want a good relationship with your colleagues and with the people in the audience? She said, oh, ab absolutely. And, and this process is called positive reframing, and it's one of about maybe oh, at least 15 or more techniques I've, I've developed for melting away resistance. And what we're really doing is selling her on keeping the symptoms and, and seeing what's beautiful about her symptoms. And this is just the opposite of the way the field is going, where, oh, you have a, a mental disorder, according to the uh, American Psychiatric Association and their DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of so-called Mental Disorders. And what, what we're saying is, although there are a few true mental disorders, like schizophrenia, which is a brain disease, uh, for the most part, th this is just human suffering. And it's your value system, your core values that trigger your your depression, your anxiety, your shame, your your hopelessness, your your anger, and so when, once we go through that, that, then I say now now we've got a quandary because you wanted to press that magic button, but if you do, all your negative emotions will instantly disappear and you'll go into euphoria. But then all these beautiful things about you are going to go down the toilet along with your negative feelings. Why in the world would you want to do that? That's now putting the patient in, into a paradox. Rather than trying to sell them on change, we're trying to sell the patient on not changing. And then what happens at that point? The resistance disappears. And she says, oh, no, please, I, I'll give anything if you'll show me how to, to get rid of these, these symptoms. And then I do something called the magic dial, say, well, we don't want to get rid of them completely, but uh, you're 100% depressed. What would be a healthy amount of depression at the end of the session tonight? She said, oh, 10% is enough. And I said, okay, you're 100% anxious and panicky. How much anxiety do you need to protect yourself to be safe? She said, oh, I think 2% is enough. And so, you know, how much anger would, would you want to have? She says, oh, well, 10% is enough. And so then what we're really made a deal with her subconscious mind, with her resistance, is said, well, we'll lower them to this level, but no lower. But then what happens now, she, her resistance is gone, and then she, she worked with me on crushing her negative thoughts, and she blew them all out of the water, and then all of her feelings actually did go to zero, and she left that session on a high. To me, when I was young, I used to dream and, and think, I wonder if we could make psychotherapy like professional basketball or something where you'd get feedback every session and you'd develop powerful techniques, you'd practice them and you'd get better and better at them and you could become this super awesome therapist. And I didn't know if it was possible. And now we're, we're really seeing that it, it is possible to do that and to train 
therapists to deliver rapid healing to uh, people. But it's it's not easy because it, it's hard to train therapists, to, to be honest with you. But I, I'm, I'm just very excited about these new developments. And I'm writing a book about it, by the way. It'll be called Feeling Great, and it's the first true sequel to my original book, Feeling Good, that I published in 1980. Are there any practitioners, are there any therapists currently using the methods that you've described here? There's a number of them because I I, I give workshops around the United States and Canada and a good 30 or 40,000 mental health professionals have attended my workshops. But one of my former students at Stanford, a young psychiatrist, Moore Katz, has started a Feeling Good Institute in Mountain View, California. And they do this new team, CBT, T-E-A-M, that I've developed. And then they're also creating centers in other places. We have two Feeling Good Institutes now in New York City. There's actually three of them now in the Bay Area, two in addition to the, the Feeling Good Institute, and they're, they're developing a certification program and, and team CBT, and then, you know, I'm spreading the news as much as I can. They're creating a, an outcome study, which is being reviewed by the Stanford Human Subjects Research Committee. You have to get your protocols approved to make sure they're safe and ethical, and so that's under review right, right now, and uh, an outcome study. I think will will help to to promote it as 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 well. And then I you know I have my weekly feeling good podcast. It's nothing like yours. I think I mean yours is just like a, you're like an elephant. We're like an ant. <laughs> feelinggood.com, www.feelinggood.com, and there you find the podcasts and the feeling good blogs and, and tons of of stuff. So I'm doing everything I can to to get the message out, but I'm not inherently skillful at marketing. I I suspect you folks are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will be linking to this in the show notes. So, you know, expect the the life hacker bump. You'll get it. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. (laughs) This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com, where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page, and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.